Hello everybody and welcome to episode 129 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. Rod Murray in the driver's seat and what matters on this episode is far removed from the top end of the game that we've all been too guilty of obsessing about recently and instead focuses on the very heart and soul of the game. In case you hadn't noticed, public golf is under threat in many places around the world and the announcement this past weekend by the New South Wales State Premier that Sydney's Moore Park Golf Club, one of the busiest in Australia and by default the world, will be cut in half to create a park. The course sits just five kilometres from the Sydney CBD and hosted more than 90,000 rounds last year, but it's long been the target of groups who'd rather see the land used as a park, and it seems those voices have now won out. There's an awful lot to unpack about a decision like this, not the least of it being the politics involved. And so on this episode, we welcome an expert in that field, in former Premier of Victoria, Daniel Andrews. Down along in just a moment, but first, to my regular co-host and first up, it's blogger, author, substacker, commentator, analyst, and so much more from LA. It's Jeff Shuckover. Jeff, today's topic, you're probably not familiar intimately with what's going on in Sydney, but I suspect the broader issue of public golf is one that we're also seeing in America. Well, just in my uh, home city here in Los Angeles, we have four courses that I know of uh, directly under threat, uh, three of them completely out of nowhere. So listening to you explain some of the the things going on with this situation, they're just identical and it's um, it's incredible when you think about it too, where, where the game is right now in terms of popularity um, and some of the strides the sport has made. It's uh, it's really it's 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 painful, but uh, we have to get the word out, and uh, because the sport has definitely taken its eye off the ball and focusing on the plight of uh, professional. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Those poor instead of. What really matters, as as you like yeah. to say with our podcast. Not for the first time, you wonder whether the world might actually be going mad. From Melbourne, or precisely Royal Melbourne Golf Club, where he's fulfilling caddy duties for Lucas Michel this week at the Asia-Pacific Amateur Championship, former touring pro turned course architect and columnist Mike Clayton. Clayton, you know that I'm gonna, you're going to get this question. I'm going to ask it anyway. How's Royal Melbourne looking ahead of what I think is going to be a terrific week? Royal Melbourne looks, because it always looks, it's uh, another, another order. We've, I think we're at the sixth... The sixth iteration of the composite course. <laughs> the um, a bit of lateral thinking. We came up the, the connection with Henry the Eighth. Hey, Henry the Eighth's sixth wife was called Catherine Parr. There you go. <laughs> oh, and this is the sixth okay. iteration of the let, composite course. Let me guess, Clates. The practice round was a bit slow today, was it? Had a bit is of this, time. Yeah. What, which team did you come up with this at? Yeah. What could go wrong? We, we, it was a shotgun start in fours at Royal Melbourne. In the Asian amateur, so Practice we only round. took we only we only took three hours for the front nine. Yeah, not for the first time, even in the last couple of minutes, you wonder whether the world really has gone mad. <laughs> sometimes, enough of us to the man of the moment, who I'm hopeful can help us understand some of the politics and the issues around this week's unexpected unexpected news about Moore Park. Daniel Andrews is the longest serving premier in Victoria's history, but also a keen and active golfer. Under his premiership, the Sandringham Golf Links was reimagined as the home of both Golf Australia and the PGA of Australia, and the resulting redesigned course is regularly touted as one of the best public access facilities in the country. He's now retired from politics, so no doubt has plenty of time to sit around and listen to golf podcasts and talk on them. Dan Andrews, welcome. Thanks for taking some time. I would imagine you've had just about enough of the media. I'm surprised that you're happy to sit down with us. Well, certain types of media, Rod, <laughs> but uh, no, no, very good, very good to be with you. Yeah. Is this decision about golf or politics, Dan? Oh, I think ultimately someone's decided that you can't have more park and more housing. And I don't think that's a particularly smart decision to make. Mm. I think you can 
all decisions made by politicians are kind of political or at least they're seen that way. But I don't think there's too many golfers in the New South Wales Cabinet to make a decision like this. It doesn't seem to make much sense to me. Yeah, indeed. So to put people in the picture who might be outside Australia or not realise, there's a national strategy in Australia. Every state has been given a target of new houses to build each year for the next five years. The number for New South Wales is 75,000 per year for the next five years. So you can see, I guess, Dan, you've got a problem immediately, haven't you, if you're running the New South Wales government. You've got to find space for 75,000 houses this year, next year, the year after, the year after and the year after that. I'd imagine there's pressures there. Feels to me like what we're seeing here is a short-sighted response to a very long-term problem that's much bigger than just golf, and that is how we use public space. So I'm conscious that this is a golf podcast, not a housing policy <laughs> podcast. Uh, but, but look, none of us are building enough houses. We all have to do more. The trick is not to build out and build more and more suburbs. The trick is to get the balance right between building some out and more up. So density uh, building homes close to where services already are, schools, hospitals, freeways, uh, public open space. Uh, this decision would make more sense if the half of the golf course that they're going to take was being turned into housing. Agreed. Not, not turned into open space. So this all gets down to one really basic thing. In order to have more density, in order to have more height, in order to avoid a kind of save our suburbs backlash from people who don't want any change ever, then you have to have a trade-off. And in the old days, the trade-off, one of the things on the list of things that might placate local communities who'd be fearful of any change in the type of housing in their local area would be more open space. But to the point you just made about a long-term problem, the whole dynamic has changed. Open space is still important. But housing that people can afford is much more important. So the grand bargain is not closing half a golf course and turning it into a park right next door to an already pretty big park. The trick is more affordable homes. So that's where I think this decision doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. Uh, the notion that it's either more park golf courses an 18-hole golf course or more housing, I don't see how a park gets you more housing. It doesn't. It just means you have less golf. Uh, and a golfing community that's pretty pretty upset. And I know a thing or two about upsetting the golfing community, Rod, but <laughs> yes, in any event, I think I think my motives might have been a little purer than these. Yeah, it, it always seems a, this binary notion, Dan, that feels like the problem to me. It's, it's always this either or. And golf is guilty of this too, in fairness. We don't often enough say to the broader community, how can we share this space so that we can all enjoy it? I, I just I feel like that also doesn't come from the other side. At no point does it seem to have been suggested – by the state government or anybody else, why can't you share the space at Moore Park here and make it available to people beyond just golf? What's the thinking of that, do you think? Why, do, why have we got this well, binary notion about golf in particular? I think that perhaps it gets back to that point about people making decisions who don't necessarily understand the game. And look, if it's good enough for the old course every Sunday to belong to everyone, then why can't you find some sort of a solution for shared access uh, at a place like Moore, Moore Park. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm not an expert on Sydney golf. I've played a bit up there, not anywhere near as much as I've played here. But in 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 many respects, um, the fact that I think a minister had to ask the representatives of the club, was there a difference between an 18-hole golf course and a nine-hole golf course, kind of tells you that – well, you, I, I'll put it to you this way. I think you described it as an unexpected decision. I think that various governments over a long period of time and local council – uh, have had 
had more park in the, in their in their sights, as it were, for a, a very very long time. Yeah, but this is all about this is all about trying to appease people. Look, have more housing that's more dense, and we'll give you extra parkland. That doesn't make a lot of sense. So I think that might be a stalking horse for perhaps a group of people who didn't want the golf course and don't support the golf course. Maybe. Yeah, which is interesting in itself. Why anybody would be so anti-golf in particular? <laughs> they would campaign for multiple years to take the facility away from a lot of people who use and enjoy it. It's successful in every way imaginable. The course makes money and contributes back to the Park Trust between 3 and $4 million a year. There's no business case for cutting it in half. So it can only but be- But who's playing that? You have to ask the question. Yeah, who's well, actually playing that, well, that's exactly right. And, well, this is how much ignorance there is in the mainstream media and community, Dan. So here's a story from today's Sydney Morning Hill. I've only got the headline in the first part. As big as three centennial parks, the golf courses that ate Sydney's east. So Sydney Centennial Park is our version of Central Park, but you might see in New York, big park right next to Moore Park Golf Course. Uh, here's the first part. 13 courses, 566 hectares. These graphics show just how much space is sucked up by the city's obsession with golf. Shackleford, have you heard this kind of thing in LA as well? The ignorance of that is stunning from a legitimate newspaper, don't you think? It is. And we've heard, all, yeah, all these things are going on. I was wrong. Actually, there are five courses we have uh, under threat, not four. And it's all the same things. It's housing related. And 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 in many of these cases, you can't even build housing on these courses, Uh either because they're in a floodplain, they're in a landfill, uh, a lot of different reasons. And yet these things still persist and, uh, and it's agony to, to listen to. And it, and it, and I know it's in part the game's fault. Um, but at times you realize some of these people, it just won't matter. Uh, they won't hear or see the things you're trying to do. We try to fix it in the U S with feel good initiatives and ad campaigns and and they really don't work when it comes to a situation like this and we're finding that out here as well mm. and it's um it's uh you know as Dan said uh we we, we have the example St Andrews has been doing it for hundreds of years and um yet the sport is just is going to have to have some painful losses I'm afraid to 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 fully understand um how to how to address this and how to make the game look a little more attractive to people who who really hate it. Dan, there's a down here. Down here was the the issue of Kingswood, which was a not particularly viable course on the sandbelt, probably the twelfth best course within fifteen minutes of Royal Melbourne, which sold up and merged with Peninsula and made Peninsula much better because that money got spent there. So, I mean, Dan, you you were familiar with the, the politics that played around that, and they're still seemingly arguing about what they're going to do with that golf course. No, no, Clay, it's got, it got its permits about uh, uh, about two weeks before I, before I left. Obviously, okay. a matter for the planning minister. I had nothing to do with it, of course, <laughs> okay. but um, that went on for too long, way too long. And they, people in that community pretended that it was like the Royal Botanic Gardens and they were losing something. You couldn't have a picnic there. It was a private golf, golf club. Yeah. Now it's going to be houses, houses that are desperately needed. Yeah. yeah, which is the which was which was the the, the crazy thing. We all need houses. Well, well, there's a place that's there's golf giving up a golf course for you know 130 acres of houses, and of course the neighbours who created the problem at Kingswood by complaining about the boundaries and forcing the golf course to change a bunch of holes, which turned out the golf course went from being pretty good to being not very good at all. 
It was a, it was a classic case of being careful what you wish for in, in terms of the neighbours there. I'm reminded, Clates, a mate of mine worked for Who magazine back in the at the time when Princess Di died, and all of the people who'd buy the magazine every time you put Princess Di on the cover with some you know salacious story wrote to the magazine in the days and weeks after Diana's death, calling them all sorts of monsters for constantly putting her on the front cover <laughs> of the magazine. Same yeah. people who were buying it just before. Dan, simple question I think a lot of us have wondered about, and it may be that it's just not feasible. Why is it not the responsibility of a developer who's building a high-density, high-rise tower for people to supply, along with that, as part of the proposition, the green space that those people will need? Well, in Melbourne, it absolutely is. What's more, we've gone one step further and said, if you want your approvals done quickly, they've got to be a high-quality product, but if you want your approvals done quickly, uh, then you have to dedicate a certain percentage, at least 10% of those homes, to uh, affordable um, housing. And there's a formula that works out you know, average incomes and all of those different things, so they are genuinely affordable homes. So there's the grand bargain. The grand bargain, because the thing is this, we need more houses, but we need more affordable houses. So you embed affordable housing in fast approved uh, developments, rapidly approved developments. Uh, and uh, this whole concept of, uh, you know, uh, whether you call it uh, amenity or open space or green space, all of that needs to be factored into the proposal the developer brings forward. Mm-hmm. That's a win for everybody, not, not uh, taking away from one group in order to try and meet the needs of uh, another. The other thing too is that, you know, I don't know how many of these Moore Park golfers are going to be able to afford what some people in politics and the media, uh, given what you just read out, would call affordable homes. Like the affordable homes that are going to be built close to the city, Mm. are they going to be affordable for the people who'll have a nine-hole golf course to play instead of an 18-hole golf course? No. (laughs) <laughs> no, they won't. Look, we, we've seen in Sydney, Sydney's a particularly bad example of long-term planning. I think we all know that. Just not far from uh, where Moore Park and Centennial Park is. And Clover Moore, the City of Sydney Lord Mayor, who's been behind this push to have the golf course cut in half for multiple years, possibly more than a decade, she constantly points to this development across the other side of Anzac Parade and Cleveland Street, which the golf course bought. And all these people in these towers, she says, look over here and see this beautiful green space, which they can't use. Well, A, that's not true. And B... Who approved all the towers? (laughs) You can't say, let's take the money for allowing the development to go ahead, and then when it's done, say, oh, but there's not enough green space, we're going to have to take something off you. It's a reductionist game that there's no winners, is there, Dan, if you you follow that to its logical conclusion? Look, ultimately, get on and build more houses because more supply means lower prices. Then if you use the power of your planning approvals to embed affordability, and as you said, um, open space, public realm. There's lots of different ways in which you can achieve this. No one needs to be a loser out of that. In fact, everyone's a winner from the people who build the homes, the people who develop, uh, to use your term before, the business case, those kind of uh, developers. Like everybody can win out of win out of that. Um, there doesn't need to be a loser here. And I don't want to sound the sort of uh, retreat, but we've got a couple of architects on the podcast. Like uh, you're up there. Uh, is anyone talking about actually spending money on what will be left of Moore Park? Well, th- that's exactly the point. I made I made the point on a podcast the other day, I think, was that fine if you want to take nine holes, but do what you did at Sandringham and invest in what's left and make it the best nine-hole course in the world or one of them. I mean, it's, it's a great piece. I've never played Moore Park, but it's a great piece of land. 
and because it's in that Sydney sand belt, it's, uh, it's undulating sand. We'll go and make a great nine or twelve hole golf course, and then and then the government wins, the you know the, the premier wins because he's placated the golfers. And Sydney gets a much better piece of golf course architecture, albeit with fewer holes. But it can be more fun to play than it is now. You build a great Himalayas putting green, yeah. build a great nine-hole course, and everyone wins out of that. And I don't, you know, that that ought to be the. I mean, you would know better, Daniel, than I about how the lobbying works. But someone ought to be lobbying the premier and say, "Well, that's fine. You can take nine holes, but it'll take." Well, Sandringham was a three million dollar redo on eighteen holes. You can take. Two or three million dollars, and rebuild what's left, and make it, you know, a great nine-hole golf course, and then everyone's happy. Well, that'd be that'd be better than refunding people's joining fees, wouldn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Mm. Like you know, and and the club won't be doing that. The club will be going to the government saying you've mm. you know fundamentally changed our business model. You should stump up. Like I would have thought, I don't know, you're the um, architect, Clates, but like two two three million would completely transform the place, wouldn't it? Absolutely. I mean, nine holes, yeah. I mean, you could, you, you nail that place for, for for that amount of money, which I assume in terms of the budget for the whole thing's nah. not a significant amount of money. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, you know, uh, well, you developer, a, developers could contribute to that, yeah, frankly. Yeah, if yeah absolutely, yeah. They should. Yeah, that's exactly right. The whole they're going to do all right out of Sydney housing in that part of Sydney. <laughs> if they're selling apartments in towers that close to the centre of the city, they're going to be right. You know, that, that's not taken as a firm quote from you, Clutch. You don't do your quotes that way, do you? Just roughly, oh, yeah, about $3 million will do your nine holes at Moore Park. Yeah. Indeed. Just before we come to some of those other issues about what golf might do in response, Dan, the what seems to have happened here is we've had Clover Moore, who's the City of Sydney Lord Mayor, as I said, who's sort of an independent. The New South Wales government is a minority government. They govern with the only with the assistance of the crossbench. One of the most important members of that crossbench is an MP who is aligned with Clover Moore. You start to follow the dots, and this is, looks like perhaps this is what's happened. Is that, in fact, how politics works? We all sit back and believe that you guys sit in a back room twirling your moustaches and coming up with evil ways to make life difficult. Is, that, uh, is it that simple that something like Moore Park can be lost in this way through a fairly simple backroom deal that's got nothing to do with golf ultimately. Oh look, I, I haven't been in that particular back room, so I don't really don't really know. But <laughs> and you don't have a mustache in fairness, so you're probably no, not I twirling don't. it. The key point, the key oh look, I think the key point is this. Uh, if you're lucky enough to be elected, whether it's majority government, minority government, you know, that, that doesn't really matter. You've got to get things done. And long after this issue's forgotten and let's face it, this will be important for a group of people in the community, but there'll be just as many people who don't play golf who think that it's great that there'll be a park that they're able to sit in and walk their dogs and have a picnic and all of that. Uh, and that's fine. I'm not being critical of them for being supportive of that. That'll be the land use that most relates to them. Uh, and Jeff made the point before, we are spectacularly bad as a golfing community in selling what we do. Uh, all the all the different benefits, everything from, you know, uh, steps steps walked all the way through to the philanthropic and charitable stuff, the school kids programs, you know, the fact that this is, I think it's been described as, as like a working class golf course. I think, you know, there's probably not a lot of people who are particularly affluent that are playing there. No offence to anybody who is affluent and is playing there. I don't know the place, but... If you don't sell it, then, you know, is it a great surprise that people are not particularly uh, invested? The other point too, there's nothing wrong if if you're in government and you rely on the support of a group of people and this is a significant priority for them, well, mm. then that's fine. You just have to be clear about that. 
it's classic compromise and nothing gets done without compromise, particularly under the circumstances. And, well, no, well, I think, no, no, it's even worse than that. Or, or even for me, even clearer than that. Trying to be 100% popular means you get nothing done. Yeah. And then you finish yeah. up being very unpopular because you did nothing. So I'm not critical of that government or any government wanting to build more houses. I just don't think that anyone needs to be a loser out of that. I think anybody, everybody should win. Yeah, that's the- as odd as that sounds, I haven't become a, you know, I haven't become <laughs> naive in the last four weeks. Um, I think you can find a way through. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, look, and there are realities, as you said, there are realities to be faced. So, Dan, this is a question for you. And this politics is in part marketing, and you've pointed out, and Jeff has too, as I've I and Clates many times over the years, how poor golf as an amorphous mass has been at marketing itself. What would you pitch? What should golf, quote unquote, do? It's a complex political beast in itself, is it not? Oh, well, golf's like any sport, it's a cross section of people and I think it's more of a cross-section today than it's ever been. Is there more that has to be done to make it a more diverse, more inclusive sport? Of course it does. Of course of course, there is, sorry. Um, that isn't to say uh, that it's the only sport that needs to reach out better and sell its wares and talk about all the benefits. There's a lot of sports, I think, that probably need to do that. But, you know, I, I think I think kids is everything um, – we don't have a first T uh, equivalent here. I'm not. Sh- I, I think Jeff was kind of alluding to the fact that that might not be as successful as we might see it. We might sort of think it is. We're, we're a long way away from that. But if you want it to be more inclusive, then you've got to be a little bit more, a little bit more uh, relaxed in the things that we as golfers think are um, important. And having, you know, getting blasted for your for your shirt being uh, shirt hanging out or you know, um, being made to feel unwelcome because uh, you stepped on someone's putting line. You know, all of these sorts of things don't help. That's that's at a at a at a very basic level. There's Beyond a time that, and place for that, isn't there, Dan? But it doesn't yeah, sure. need to be when people turn up at Oakley, for example, to have a go at one club that Sandy Jamison runs there. You don't need people telling you you've trodden in the line, and you don't get that there. In fairness, I'm a fan of Sandy's dress regulation idea, which is to go and stand outside that Chadston shopping centre that Clates often talks about, which is the size of a city in itself. It's a retail centre in Melbourne, has its own hotel attached. Sandy says, imagine standing outside Chadston and telling people as they walked in that they couldn't come in because they were wearing this. He said, that's what golf does. That's what golf does to people. So, no, you can't come in because you're wearing But, it's, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's even worse than that, Rod. Have you seen some of the gear that people dress up in at golf? Yeah. Like. Yes. That, that famous rule about would you stop and get petrol on the way home from play? <laughs> uh, if you wouldn't, you're not wearing really the right things. Um, we're, I don't think we're in any position as a golfing community to lecture anybody about, about fashion. <laughs> very good quietly. point. Yes, very good point. Very good point indeed. But it can be more welcoming. It can be more inviting. It can be less formal. And that's, that's, mm. that's on the way in. That's to get people to take the game up. In terms of protecting the game from bad uh, decisions, and lo and behold, you know, or perish the thought uh, to promote the game so you've got positive decisions, we should be out there selling all the benefits and the fact that it is much more inclusive today than it's ever been. Yeah, it is actually moving in the right direction. I think you're right about that. Jeff, we've talked about it a million times, golf's image problem and everything that stems from that, and this is definitely a part of that. How do we get golf's message out? It seems to me one of the problems we've got is 
Golf's just popular enough to have its own media. We've got multiple golf magazines here in Australia, a population that barely supports a mainstream newspaper in this <laughs> city. We've got two golf magazines and a couple of other publications. How do we get beyond those publications? We are right mm. now preaching to the converted. How do we break out of that? Well, we finally have the RNA uh, getting pretty aggressive on this front with their uh, uh, golf it facility in Glasgow. And I haven't seen it yet, but it aims to do essentially what, what Clates and Dan were just talking about, which is it, it took a place that was on the endangered list has reimagined it. Uh, so there's golf, there's practice, uh, there's a fitness component. There's a uh, environmental component. Uh, Scott McPherson, the architect, uh, you know, created an element where there's a hiking system mm -hmm. Um, a wildflower, and and uh, I believe there's a food um, growing area that they can bring school uh, groups to to show them things that can be done, and just to just do something different outdoors, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a great example. It's way too late, but it's it's at least reimagining a place that was endangered. Um, and I I mean this is just uh, seems so ridiculous and silly, but one of the things that I hear a lot. Um, is that when golf courses let it be known that uh, you don't have to play golf to come in and, and have a hot dog or uh, have a cheeseburger or come and have lunch at a course, it completely changes the perception of the place in the community. We have a course here in Southern California. The strangest thing with our city courses, they're not well run, but for some reason, somebody decided to, to allow the food and beverage operations to be put out for bid and all these great sort of hipster restaurant groups in LA have been interested because they're so centrally located. And already one of them ran into some asbestos issues and it's not done yet at Rancho Park, which essentially it was the equivalent of the project you're talking about in Sydney. Our Rancho Park is the same thing. Center of the city has a park next to it, by the way, uh, so that we don't need more park space. It's not in danger yet. But the key with this has been, and the, the course here in Southern California that I'm closest to, Penmar, recreated their food and beverage with an indoor-outdoor thing. They have live music. It's near Venice, which is a, a very liberal kind of uh, former hippie community with now with all these people with money. But it's completely changed the perception of the course because people go there and have lunch or they have an evening cocktail or an evening dinner. And they and and people there will tell you they say I, we had no idea we could come here and have a bite. Well, one there used to not be decent food, but now there's decent food, and of course you can. It's a public facility, and so it's little weird things like that that completely change people's perception of golf. Uh, and we know that if if courses did shut down once a month for uh, what was that frisbee thing for a while that was uh, we were told was going to grow the game. Uh, anyway, that that's gone. But there are other things you can do and bring your dog days and yeah. um, uh, anything that's just just a little more subtle. That's I think another problem. Wouldn't you agree, Rod? That golf just you know they put so much money into PSAs, public yeah. service announcements, and campaigns and they're so phony they're so synthetic and well they talk to golfers jeff that. and this is the problem because you've got this yeah, large and you're right they're just golf played to golfers and so yeah. if, if the usga did something really bold or the rna chances are many in the golf media would savage them so as this correct and so you kind of can't there is win. that yeah no you can't that's, and that's why i love what they're doing in glasgow they just they just said screw it we Bugger don't care it. what you think we're going to take this facility 
and we're going to re reimagine it. And they hopefully we'll do the same thing with the course next to um, Hoy Lake, which is closed as well. Closed over, um, uh, I think there was a 300,000 uh, pound uh, cost uh, element to maintaining it. And they were trying to make up for 27 million pounds in a in a in in the uh the local area's deficit. And you're like, really, you're closing the course. So now the course is abandoned. You've you've closed it for that amount of money that that and it was and golf's in a good place. And you just think, now how does this make sense? And of course, as we know, a golf course, when it gets abandoned, done. Uh, it. it is yeah. not pretty. It is not at first, it's very hard to get back once you've let it go for a little while, but it also it just becomes awful in terms of everything that can go on there and 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 it looks terrible and the people who wanted it gone are really suddenly regretting that it's no longer maintained so um it's sad that we've gotten to that point where we have examples yeah. of that in a different way to what Shaq's describing clates this is what scotland gets right doesn't it is that golf is simply part of communities in australia golf always seems to be over there you go over well, there to play golf well, and you go over there to play golf and it's surrounded by fences. I mean, Scotland, there are no fences. And, and right. the advantage Scotland has, certainly the links course, is they start in the town as the old course does. And it plays out to the far end and it comes back to the town, North Berwick and Panmere and all those Carnoes, all those Dornock, all those famous courses. They're town courses. So, you know, as Ogilvy said, so when you go into the pub at North Berwick, everyone knows the 15th was tough because the wind was into off the left today. Mm. You know, everyone knows that because, well, that's just, it's a tough day to play the 15th at North Berwick. So you go into the pub and so so it's a community game and and there are no fences and it's assumed that everyone can walk on the golf course and they can yeah. and it's and it's fine. Quite I mean, long. Yeah. You know, and of course, here's why well, they'll get hit. People will get hit with balls and, well, in Scotland they don't because they pay attention, they understand it and it's always happened that way and it's the relationship with the community is much different than it is here. Yeah, it, and, of course, and, and and we're much more open to the community. I mean, anyone can walk in the gate at Royal Melbourne at any time pretty much. They certainly can this week this when week, the Asian yeah. Amateur is on. But and recommend they do, the by the way. They'll see some good golf on a yeah. fabulous golf course. But, um, yeah. You know, th there are way more closed gates in America than there are in Australia. Yeah, yeah way more. Even our public courses are surrounded by tall fences, yeah. shrubbery, uh, we, you know, they send a message that they are like a pri yeah. private club. Dan, I, I guess that means we're in Australia and UK and some of these places where this is we're more the other way. We've got much more work to do to make that because Shaq's right. You would know plenty of non-golfers and most of them would just assume if it's a golf course, you're not allowed in there unless it's for a golf purpose. They wouldn't know you could go into the clubhouse and have a drink. How do we get those messages? You've had some experience with the media, Dan. How would you get the oh, no, message think, out beyond no, the golf media? I think, I think, I think there's a couple, there's a couple of points. Um, in a strange way, and not to again sound the sort of uh, retreating trumpets, but if if Moore Park became an absolutely outstanding nine-hole golf course, I think it might be a better advertisement to prospective golfers. Time is the thing we haven't talked about. Yeah, like people, yeah. people don't have four and a half, five, whatever it is, hours, or if you're doing Clates practice round this morning, three <laughs> hours for nine holes. <laughs> Like, no, do the math on that. Like, try selling that at home. That doesn't just does not work. So whether it's nine or 12 holes that are absolutely fantastic uh, at a place like Moore Park, that might be a gift in many respects. I know it sounds terrible to say, but it might no, be. No, we get you. <laughs> that might be much better. Um, the other thing, too, is 
we like we are sports mad, right? The number of people who go to the Australian Open tennis and don't play tennis, they go because it's about excellence and it's done well mm. and it's the best of the best. We haven't talked about other things in golf today, but the fact that we haven't had really high-quality tournament golf in our country for a long time because of wraparound seasons and the growth in appearance money and all these other things means you don't value what you haven't been able to experience. If you go to Royal Melbourne, you leave there knowing it's a special place. And if the competition is elite enough, then you will attract people who don't play golf regularly or don't play golf at all. The President's Cup shows you that and the the outrageous success we've had, big, 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 big crowds, uh, and a good portion of them are social golfers, infrequent golfers. There'd even be some people who aren't golfers. So I don't know. Growing the game is um is I don't like that expression very much. It's been hijacked by others, but there are some simple things you can do. Anti growing the game. Be, time is time is yeah. one of them. Yeah, you're welcome here anytime, Dan. You're anti the growing the game line. You've fallen right into line with how we how we do. It's all bullshit by yeah. people who are growing their. But um, business, code for growing business. Yeah, they're bank accounts. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm not sure. We, were you in charge when Tiger came here the first time, Dan? I'm, remember the and the helicopters no, following that's, the that's, practice that's, round? That's another, that's another Labor government. I was um, I was the health minister at the time, and it was my job to keep a track on whether he'd made the, made the cut uh, <laughs> and what he'd shot and to tell the Premier of the day because we had paid quite a lot of money for yeah. him. And uh, – the other side of politics had criticised us for doing so. Mm. Thankfully, he played well. He ultimately won. It was a, it was surreal that week. It was absolutely surreal. Yeah, Joe, I don't know whether you remember this, Shaq, but the first time Tiger came and played this was the Australian Masters. Uh, they had a helicopter out. One of the local news TV stations had a helicopter out over his yeah. practice round. It was embarrassing. <laughs> Golfers across Australia were going, oh, God, what are we doing here? But that yeah. was a case. Tiger's kind of been part of the problem moving away from the Moore Park issue, Dan. Tiger's been part of the problem in that way, hasn't he? He was worth the three or five or whatever it was that you paid him million dollars. He returned five or six or seven or whatever it was. So you got back your money and then you made some on top. Everybody else in golf at the top of professional golf, their prices went up because Tiger was so expensive. They didn't give the returns, though, did they? It's a separate problem, but it plugs in yeah. in a way to what we're talking about here, doesn't it? Because that's been part of the problem for Australia. The, the prices are so high for a world-class player because Tiger drew the market to a point where we can't yeah. afford them anymore. Well, there's a, there's a couple of points. I feel obliged to say that he didn't just return on the investment. Mm. He returned to defend his title yeah. the following year, yeah. which is not always the case. No. Uh, Look, the, we live in a market economy, and he sets he sets the the new the new top price, and everyone else follows behind. And, and you can't blame people for that. I think management's got some some questions to answer here. I think they're particularly uh, aggressive often, uh, and that's probably inflated prices. But the big the bigger problem is the fact that there's professional golf at high standards for big purses and lots of points being played pretty much the whole year. Yeah. So the notion of the southern hemisphere trip to play multiple tournaments in the off-season when there isn't an off-season, uh, or if you've got so much money you don't really care if there's an off-season, that's what's really hurt us, I think. Yeah, it's um, it, it, and it only gets more and more difficult. We need, we're lucky we have fading, but still there in Adam Scott, a fabulous ambassador, and Cam Smith. Always comes home. Always Absolutely. comes home. Yeah, and Cam Smith, very much the same. You can't criticise Cam Smith in any way for his loyalty to no. the tour. 
Clates, what about so you deal with lots of people in lots of different ways, right from yeah. clubs and boards to talking about course changes and renovations and all that comes with that. And I'm sure that those meetings are always fantastic. But you hang out in all sorts of circles with non-golfers and whatnot. What's your broad sort of take on how something like what's happening at Moore Park will be seen? We're jumping up and down in golf, particularly in Sydney. Do you reckon non-golfers yeah. have even noticed? Well, would, would any of us care if the same thing happened to polo or no yachting or any other sort of sport that's perceived Those as elite being sports for the privileged few, Clates. Yeah. No, of course and I wouldn't course, care. Yeah, and of course golf is not polo or yachting or, mm. you know, it's, it's a much more egalitarian sport than my perception of what polo and yachting are. I suppose there are people who bump around in little small boats and, and that's the public course version of, I'm assuming. There's, there's I'm no one bumping around on a small horse, though, Clates. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There no such, there's no such thing as a cheap horse. Um, <laughs> that's right. But but your point, Daniel. I mean, going back to Jeff, I know is um, about to write something about the American PGA and the fact that that championship, which is a distant fourth, as the Australian Open tennis was in relation to the other three major championships in both sports, why that championship doesn't travel every now and then. And it would be amazing to you know look at the window here to, to play the. PGA Championship at Royal Melbourne would seem a no-brainer. If, if I was running the US PGA, it would seem like if I want to create the, the same interest in my championship than the US Open, the, the Open Championship and the Masters have, then let's take it around the world every once every Olympic year or whatever. Better than better than Kemper, Kemper Lakes, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, all that stuff. Oh. Yeah. You're really yeah, endearing yeah. yourself here, Dan. You're going to get an invite back if you're yeah. careful. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a course I haven't heard in a while. Yeah. Name? Wow. Yeah. And um, Mike Reed, yeah. I'm I'd have sure. to get that into my piece. <laughs> yeah. Pull that up. Uh. But, you know, I think it would do wonders for the PGA Championship to, to travel around the world every now and then. It would transform its image. It's fine in America, but, you know, if you brought it to Royal Melbourne and, you know, Kasumi Kaseki and um, wherever else she took it, Durban Country Club, or you know, Sean T. Every <laughs> once every four years, it would be yeah. an incredible boon for that championship and for God, you know they all spew up the the growing the game thing, but they actually don't want to do anything to no. grow it outside of their own little purview. Yeah. What you're talking about there, Clates, is differentiation. Is that right, Dan? You differentiate in Absolutely. some way, and like, but the, but the other thing to remember though, like we we paid very significant money to get the President's Cup to Melbourne every time, right? Not as a golfing event, but as a major event mm -hmm. that would have the most number of eyeballs across the world looking at all the product placement that we put alongside that. Um, the fact that it happens to be followed by a group across the community who do travel, sorry, across the world who do travel, and you've got to sell your wares. You've got to say, well, if you want to be considered a proper golfer, then you have to have, you have to have come and played the Melbourne Sandbelt and the London Heathland. And you've got to go out to Long Island and you, you know, so on and so on. You've got to go to Scotland, of course, and all of that. But it wasn't a golfing event. It was a major event. So perhaps within golf, we need to have the same mindset, like showcase, sell, spruik. You know, I think that there'd be every chance that Seth War and that crew would would be alive to that on the basis that it would be very profitable, presumably. Yeah, there's yeah. so a question, so, Daniel. So would the state government pay more for the, a PGA Championship than they would pay for the President's Cup? Well, I'm just reminded of the, if you take the 
if you take Jay Monahan's claims about the strength of the field of the players, clearly the PGA Championship has got the strongest field in golf, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Like if you do the appearance money on that, work out how much that field's worth. Well, that's that's like, $100 million probably. Or 50, more. Oh, 50, yeah, probably keep going, more. Clates. We're in the world of live now, remember? So the yeah, answer is, yeah. sorry, that's a lot. I've, I've, I've complicated a simple question. The answer is yes, you would pay at least what you paid for the President's Cup, if not more. Yeah. Because you'd be the biggest thing in golf that week anywhere in the world. And you get to showcase what you do. And you would, the tourism dollar on that would be enormous. Just the travelling party, all the circus that comes with it. There wouldn't be a hotel room in Melbourne. wouldn't be a restaurant no. you could get into. It would be a massive boost. Yeah. So what I was going to say, obviously you can see the, the benefit of that for golf, if you're a golfer. But in the broader community, is that a hard sell for golf as a major event? Or do those numbers genuinely stack up? Absolutely, they do. They absolutely stack up. They stack up on the President's Cup. They'd stack up on the fourth fourth major, and you wouldn't call it the fourth major for longer. It'd be the international major. That's right. Yeah. You it's ma- it's maddest that the strongest field of the four majors is seen as the weakest of the four majors, isn't it? <laughs> it's always- well, 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 it's the least interesting. Yes. Because the golf yeah. courses are less interesting than the US Open courses. The Open's the World Open. The Masters is- you know, His masters, that's, yeah. that's the greatest marketing job anyone's ever done on anything since Coca-Cola. Pretty interesting tournament this year, though. Like, it's got storylines. The club praised up with that a bit. Yeah, true. Yeah. But still, who won? Kepka won, right? It, yeah, yeah, Kepka won. Yeah. It, it feels like potential <laughs> going to waste the PGA, doesn't it? That's what I've always thought about. It feels like it's got this a bit like the Australian Open tennis had all of this potential. It just wasn't being realised for all sorts, of, and it wouldn't be that difficult well, to know, feel like to, to well, change. Well, to, to your point about the sell, like there's a lot of people who don't play tennis who mm. would who would who very jealously guard and are and are and are proud of the fact that we're the only city in the world, Melbourne, the only city in the world that's got Formula One Grand Prix and a Grand Slam tennis tournament. If we finished up on the uh, rotation, you know, so say when every Olympic year, like every eighth year, the PGA was being played played here, mm. like that'd be money well spent, and the and the side benefit, of course, golf would do well out of it out of it too. Yeah, yeah, indeed. trust trust Ogilvy to be thinking in those terms, but yeah. Well, right, yeah. right, right now we're wishing he won a PGA, not a USA. <laughs> he might have had a bit more, bit more sway. Uh, yeah. mm. That does seem unlikely. Well, well, it would have been wonderful if you were right. Having said that, Rod, now that the, now that we're not allowed to call it the British Open, it's now the Open. <laughs> I floated the idea with a with an RNA guy who works for the RNA lives in Singapore yesterday. Well, now it's the Open. Why can't we, on the anniversary of Peter Thompson's? Final win at the Open in 1965 in 2065. Play the Open in Australia. And he sort of looked and said, well, "I don't think we'd ever do that." But he sort of he thought about it for a bit. And you know, does the Open always have to be in Britain? Well, no, man, got Ireland. There are people. Well, I'm well, sure well, that, well, that's the worst that's right, yeah. golf they're going to Ireland. Yeah. Isn't it? I'm sure there are some people when they see you coming, Clates, they duck. Just in case you're going to hit them with something insane like that, yeah, uh, he was he was asking for something that he won't benefit from. That's like exactly the old oak, 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 oak tree, Clayton. Yeah. Like that's yeah, twenty twenty sixty five. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. Yeah, yeah, I'm not going to be there. Seven, yeah, no, yeah, it's I'd be 107. Yeah, the ultimate altruist. You know, is there ever a day when the open? Isn't in Britain, but it occasionally goes somewhere else. Yeah, it'll go to Dubai or Abu Dhabi or possibly, given no, what's unfolding, Riyadh. 
that's where the Ryder Cup's going to end up, you would think, at some point. Well, the Ryder Cup will be I, there for sure yeah, at some point. I think, I think the PGA would be more likely to head to a destination like that, wouldn't it? Well, you know, well, they've shown no appetite for it. The idea has been soundly rejected every time it's been mentioned. Have they, how long have they named their view, venues into the future now, Shaq? Into the twenty, the, PG, the PGA of America, yeah, into the 20, uh, only to twenty thirty. I think thirty publicly and thirty one. Yeah, there. okay. I yeah, they've they've they've, they've been careful, which is part of the reason I wasted all this time writing this piece because <laughs> I figured, well, at least they haven't committed. Yeah, the USGA <laughs> just announced. Another open for Pinehurst today in 2047, uh, as if we needed that news. Really? Uh, yeah. But, but to, to buy the merchandise now. <laughs> yeah, great, great. Um, but to Dan's point, uh, one of the things that was interesting for me going to Rome for the Ryder Cup was seeing how little people knew about it, but they didn't know it was coming. They didn't really understand it. And I would love to go back now. And because I still haven't written the piece I wanted to write, which was, you know, this growing the game nonsense doesn't always mean putting clubs in the hands of people. Sometimes it's just changing the perception of the sport. And 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 Italy has too many great things going on. They don't need more golf <laughs> no, courses. They really don't need really to play not. golf. They can't develop olive groves into golf courses anyway. But the way that event went off, the success that it was, and you had two Italians as captains. And I would love to go back to Rome just to go back and you know have have some great food and and um and and live the good life. But I've got to think that it changed the perception of golf just because they put on a good show. Uh, and there's a national pride in that, no matter what you think of a sport and how you feel and and the economic impact. I mean, they don't have a problem with tourism in Rome at the moment, but uh, you know it just had to be something that that was noticed by people. And I think golf loses sight of that. Sometimes it's that, that bringing a tournament somewhere doesn't mean putting clubs in the hands of people and making them golfers for life. It's, it's, it's the nice economic jolt. It's the people come from around the world and see your community and think more highly of it. Yeah. You know, there are little things like that, that are, that are just so that, that the sport forgets sometimes. And, and uh, it's a soft sell, isn't it, Shaq, what you're talking about there? It's a little bit of that Scottish yeah. idea of you don't have to play golf, but you don't need to be anti it just because you don't play. I feel like we've got a lot of right. anti golf in America and Australia at various places in oh, particular. Yeah. It's anti golf. It's not just indifference, it's a real hatred for the yep. game and what people think it stands for. It, it, it makes me sad to think when, when we all know, and anybody listening to this is likely to know, the joy that golf really brings people, which brings me something neatly to this, Dan, and you'd be familiar with uh, Moore Parks taking a lot of the headlines at the moment because it's a big middle of the city and state governments and whatnot. Oakley Golf Course, a little nine-holer in Monash in suburban Melbourne, is facing a similar problem. The local council has thrown up an idea to turn it into a park rather than a golf course. And if you follow Sandy Jamison on Twitter, you couldn't, you wouldn't be human if you thought that it was a good idea to close that golf course. We in golf are opting for that soft sell idea and we try to tell the stories of those people and I think that's important is the reality for golf that what we really need is some of those backroom mustache twirling hard-headed political types to actually get things done in the engine room of where decisions are made well I would I would reject your <laughs> terrible caricature of people that are involved in the profession I've just just left um oh look possibly possibly uh, I think that You've got to make sure people understand that uh, if people are angry about a decision rightly, they will carry that with them and they won't support you in the in the future. So you've got to perhaps 
acquaint people with the consequences of the decisions they make. Uh, you can call that lobby, you can call that whatever you, whatever you want. But again, you've got to be creative enough to find a middle path. So, for instance, Northcote, um, which is not a state government issue, neither is Oakley, it's the local council, uh, and I think we've come up with a reasonable a reasonable position around Northcote. Uh, so it'll still be golf. There'll be a different routing, less holes, some parkland, shared use. There, there is always a way forward if you're prepared to, you know, do the, the, hard, the hard work. But I think all too often you're coming up against people who don't understand the game, loathe the game, and by extension aren't big fans of the people who play it. And at the end of the day, if you go to Northcote or Oakley or I dare say to Moore Park, it's not the view that people have of golf and golfers. It would be very, very different to that. Yeah. Uh, and it's the only form of the game and the only playing fields, the only grounds um, for for golf uh, where people at those income levels would be able to play. Yeah. So it's a, it's a double crime in many respects. It's a misunderstanding and ignorance is always bad. But you're locking out of the game people who don't have other options. Hmm. This doesn't make any sense. They're not going to join Royal Melbourne. Well, no, nobody gets into the game, has a season on TV and thinks, I wouldn't mind having a crack at that. Yeah, I'll go and join Royal Melbourne and buy 4000 bucks worth of clubs to see if I like it. It's just not feasible. It doesn't make any yeah. sense. There's got to be some option to allow people. And the other thing about that, Dan, there's always – offends me because it's always urban golf courses and we'll talk very quickly in a moment about what the future of urban golf courses might be with all those land pressures that we're talking about with housing and whatnot, how we navigate that. You essentially, there was a golf course up here, it was not a very good golf course, at Hurlston Park out near Canterbury, quite inner city and um, whatnot. They just announced one. There was no contact. They just announced one day they'd closed at the council. That's it. It was no longer a golf course. It was going to be a heat, heat sink of some course. They were, they were going to build a, build, dig a big hole and build a lake. So a whole bunch of kids around that area that that Council has just taken away the any opportunity they might have had to perhaps fall in love with the game and go on to make it their professional business in some way. So you're actually just, for no apparent reason, taking away opportunity. We've kind of gone around in circles here, but but look, ultimately, um, they'd never take away a cricket ground. No, they'd never take away a football oval. But never, in fact, they're looking to build more of them, mm. and and so they should. And they want to, in some place, they want to take the golf course and build them on those um, instead. And, and why is that? Because cricket does a much better job of engaging with people and not presenting them with a very, you know, a, 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 a rule book this thick, uh, both the rules of the game and all the other bullshit that goes along with it as well. Mm. Reasons not to be a golfer. Like cricket doesn't do that. Reasons not to be a cricketer. Football, these other sports don't do that. They're, they are absolutely engaging and welcoming and they're always out there selling their wares and they've got good, strong corporate partnerships to do that and one begets the other. Um, I think the administrators of the game here have to do more and do better and that's easy to say when you aren't one, but of it is. You, know, you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Everything lands at the feet of God. Like when you're the Premier in Victoria, everything ultimately lands at your feet, actually, whether it's your problem or not. You've got to find ways to do yeah, it. You want the credit for the good stuff. You've yeah. got to cop the other that's, stuff as well. That's exactly right. What's Clates's role and his brethren as a golf course designer in the future of golf in urban landscapes? If we go forward 50 years and this is the path that as a community we continue to go down, golf will likely be all but removed as a public access facility for generations of the future. And it will become the elitist game that those who don't like it accuse it of being. There's an irony to that. 
What's Clates's role in the golf course architecture and golf's role in making sure that doesn't happen, Dan? What does golf need to do to be on that front foot? Well, th- you presented me with a – we did not caucus before this. Um, <laughs> no, we I, didn't. <laughs> you, you presented me with a, you've presented me with a very important opportunity. Um, I don't think Mike ever got the credit he should have got because of various changes to businesses and things. Um, I don't think Sandy happens without Mike. And when you think about literally – uh, next door, right next door to uh, Royal, Royal Melbourne, great piece of land. The potential there was not obvious to all of us, but it was to Mike. And if he hadn't put the screws on me to come up with the money, then we would have built the what is called the home of golf, which is you know a series of office buildings, and we wouldn't have upgraded the course. And now, you know, I don't, I don't want to be self-serving, but I think that's one of the greatest gifts to public golf and urban public golf for decades. Uh, and if anyone wants to know what Clates' role is, and they can go down there and have a look at that. It's it's brilliant. Driving range, big Himalayas putting green, elite practice facility for elite players and elite for the rest of us as well, and a reimagined golf, golf course. It was a team of people who did the work. Mm-hmm. I don't think Clates was, was, wasn't doing the shaping as such, but, it, <laughs> you know, it's... If you if you build great golf holes, then you maximise their chances of surviving. And it's you know that, that place is unimaginably better. But you know, the the problem with the model of public golf courses in Australia is that the council own them and lease them out to an operator who's never going to spend the money on the architecture because that costs money. And the golf course is shut while he does it, and he can't put the green fees up when it's finished because he prices himself out. So. No one's ever spent any money on the architecture. It was only that Daniel and the state government put the money into Sandringham that you know, created a golf course that's going to be fantastic for another 100 years yep. because it was a good bit of land next to Royal Melbourne with a pretty average bit of architecture on it. But it's been transformed and it's great fun. And, in fact, it's wild. The greens are actually harder here than at Royal Melbourne. Though. Those greens are like bricks. Mm. So it's kind of really cool to play. But... But but it's a fantastic, you know, it's a 5,500-yard golf course or something, par 68 or something, whatever it is. But it, but it's brilliant golf, brilliant and golf. there's so much more we could do for public golf to make it better, which is why I think the government in New South Wales can win yeah. the argument with everyone. If they say, we're going to take nine holes, but we're going to spend $3 million and we're going to make what's left the best nine-hole course in the world. And the best nine-hole course in the world, not that, it's not that high a bar. Royal Wellington, Newmarket's fantastic. The Dunes Club in Michigan. There are a few really good nine-hole courses, but there aren't that many of them. But and if you and if you love it, play it twice. Yeah, you know, go around twice. Yeah, yep. exactly, exactly. And you can build. You know, you can be inventive and have two greens on different holes and different tees yeah, and alternate you know, Create all that variety and stuff that you know when you go around the second time, you're not necessarily playing the same golf course again. Yeah. So that's the way the New South Wales government ought to win the battle with golfers is. And it's does, it's not going to cost that much. I mean, over the road was you know three three minute whatever it was for eight for eighteen new greens and eighteen reimagined holes. Redoing nine holes at Moore Park's not going to cost that much. That's well, about a year. And, a year and, of and what it that returns. Everyone, yeah. everyone's happy then. It's it's one year of what Moore Park currently returns to the Moore Park and Centennial Parklands Trust is about three yeah. to four million a year. That's what they give back after they've um, taken out all the costs uh, of their operations. Well, I'm not sure if we solved anything, but. We've sort of identified, I guess, some of the issues. I, I, I like, Dan, the notice, the, the idea of being optimistic. I've, I've been saddened by what's happened with Moore Park, but I think you're right. Time to move past that and see what an opportunity it might be uh, for 
now's the time to make something positive. Was it Ralph Waldo Emerson? For everything you gain, everything you lose, you gain something. For everything you gain, you lose something. So there's there is potential there for it to be ultimately a positive story for golf. The the other thing, Rod, is I think it's highly unlikely that the government only having just announced this decision, they're going to turn around and you know do a complete one eighty. Oh no, it's not going to. So it's a, so it's a compromise you're looking for, yeah. and if it's a few a few dollars, as you say, a fraction of what they return each year, uh, to make it as Mike says, mm. literally the best nine hole golf course in the world. And how far does the sand go down? Like hundred hundred feet or something. Oh, it's, like it's pretty good. Pretty good. It's great. Yeah, land. Yeah. Great land. It's, it's perfect. Mm. It's perfect ground for golf. I mean, well. We rid of the lakes next door. You just dig a hole and it goes forever. The sand. Yeah, yeah. No, Which of course that, is you know it goes to the the Royal Sydney article about yeah we've stolen less land. Well, you know Sydney's full of not very good golf, but there was one seam of sand where the people who built golf there a hundred years ago recognised and said, well, "Let's put golf on this good land here for because it and, and they built the only really good golf in the city. Mm-hmm. And you know every city, like it or not, should have. Good golf. Every every prosperous city in the world's got great golf. Yeah, as a resident of any city, you'd like to think it's got a, a great golf facility, a great <laughs> race track, a great this. It's it's you know whether you use it or not, you'd like to be a part of something that uh, that has that. Uh, it's been a fabulous chat, gentlemen. Have I missed anything from you, Shaq, Clates, or Dan? Oh, yeah, no. The only thing I I'd say you, the difference you guys have is environmental. Environmentally, we are. You know, we have a ways to go because courses here, I, part of the hostility comes from the perception of golf and golf just has not done a good enough job. It's trying to change people's understanding of how much less uh, pesticide and chemical usage goes on and and that these places are actually living, breathing, healthy, healthier places uh, as green spaces. And you guys don't do the things that people do here and haven't for a long time so that's another part of this component i'm sure that that uh, dan has seen that um that golf has to really keep working on overcoming that these spaces are are valuable green spaces and and i know golfers don't care about hearing that but it, it really people there are people who do appreciate that over you know more high-rise housing yeah. developments and, and you walk around royal melbourne and the rest of the sandbelt you know, it's the sole preserve of the indigenous heathland of Melbourne. It's yeah, all gone. Yeah. You know, it's all gone. And and you you can go to war with a local council over cutting down a mahogany gum. Yet you could come to Royal Melbourne and mow out all the heathland tomorrow, and no one would say a word. And it's a yeah. hundred times more valuable. Yeah. Actually, yeah. they credit and, Royal Melbourne of cultivated. The looked that, after you know, and spread it, that, haven't they? They've really, yeah, really good job it, it. It's six inches to a foot high versus a sixty foot high manic, um, you know, lousy mahogany gum. Yet. No one cares about the heathland outside of the golf course because no one knows it's there. Mm. But if it wasn't for golf, none of it would be here. It would all be yeah. out under for houses and whatever. And they have a photo slideshow on the uh, on the Asia Pacific Amateur website of all the all, all the cool stuff out there on the That's site. Amazing. Which I, yeah, yeah this is beautiful. <laughs> well, they run a nursery, yeah. don't they, Clates? And once a year, they have an open day for people from the local community to come in and look at all the amazing heathland plants at Royal Melbourne. Well, and the nursery. ones that come in for the first time, like, wow, I didn't know yeah. this was here. Yeah. Mm. Well, it wouldn't be here yeah. if it wasn't for the golf course. No. Yeah, it's exactly right. Uh, just on that quickly, Dan, the environment should play an important part in golf's future messaging, should it not? The Australian Golf Industry Council released their report earlier, well, I think it was last week now. One of the elements of that was a study done by a group of Melbourne academics. It's not the first time we've seen this as a result, that a golf course is a more environmentally diverse and net positive than a park. Uh, 
I don't see golf selling that enough, but that could be a really important one for people who are otherwise perhaps indifferent. Park will be filled with non-Indigenous trees with shortcut grass and artificial wetlands. Mm. Um, I know some golf courses that look like that. I've just been in America and, and saw, saw a few that look very much like that. But yeah. our golf tend not to look like that. They tend to be much more natural, much better bird life, all of that. You know, I'm not going to do the play the part of David um, Attenborough here, but like at the end of the day, <laughs> at the end of the day, the fact that there's a lot of good stuff and stuff with absolute integrity from an environmental point of view going on behind those fences we spoke about, that's part of the problem. No one actually knows, knows. and members kind of take it for granted. But look, all is not lost. I think we might have honed in on what hopefully the leadership at Moore Park goes and sees the Premier and says, look, we want some money uh, and we want to turn this into something really, really special. If you're not for turning, if you're not going to change your mind, then let's at least get some positives out of this. Uh, But I don't know. I think you can have more park and more housing. That would be my view. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, nicely, uh, nicely. But the last thing I would just say before we go is, is just about language and this notion. I mean, you see this all the time. And Clovermore is particularly guilty of this. We want to take this back to create create green space. It's already green space. Golf courses are green space. And there just seems this acceptance that they're not. People just let that go. The other one, and the Premier himself was guilty of this last week, we're going to create a new park. No, you're not. You're going to repurpose an existing park that is currently home to golf. There's nothing new about what you're doing there beyond what you're going to use it for. And that's disingenuous, and that sort of language isn't helpful, and it should be called out as often as we can. So I've done my bit there, and it's up to the rest of you to do your bit. Dan it's Andrews. It's a good point, Rod. Look, at the end of the day, um, Clo- I don't know Clover Moore, but she's a very successful she political is. leader in her community. She, she keeps is. getting re-elected, and yep. one of the reasons for that is that she – She's clear on what she's for and what she's against, and mm. she's out there, you know, doing things. Um, seems to me that there's no one or nowhere near enough people in golf that are doing the same. Mm. Yep. Mm. We keep coming back to it. Golf's going to have to accept at some point. Much of this is our own fault, and we need to get on with fixing that and uh, and making it better for the future. Dan, it has been fabulous to talk to you. Appreciate you taking the time, and uh, hope you're enjoying golf in your retirement and plenty of it. It'd be great of you to take some time today. Thanks very much for having us on. Yeah, Jeff, always great to talk to you, my friend, and uh, good luck with uh, the wokesters over there that are filling up the golf clubhouses in LA, apparently, the hipsters and the man buns. Good luck with that. Hey, you know what? If it makes them uh, okay with golf (laughs) and the food is good, I think it's fantastic. Now we just need to get the same approach to the actual golf courses (laughs) if they don't get redeveloped. One step at a time, Jeff. One step at a time. Yeah, but this is a good start. Good start. something. Good start. And, Clay, it's always great to talk to you. Best of luck this week at the Asia-Pacific Amateur Championship. Have you got any predictions for what might happen? If people are in Melbourne, they'd be mad not to go and have a look, would they not? Yeah, what does it cost, Clates, to get in? Uh, it costs, um, it's free to get in. Yeah. Free? Yeah. How about yeah, it was that? walking the gate, Roma. Um, wow. How my cool prediction, um, Kazuma Kabore, who won the individual in the Eisenhower Cup last <laughs> week, uh, New yeah, Zealand. he's a good player. He's really, really good. Um, he's playing this week, and he's the favourite. Yeah, and New Zealand would be so happy if he took the Australian amateur and the Asia-Pacific amateur at Royal Melbourne. The Kiwis will give it to us for decades about that if he pulls it off. So yeah. it'll be... Yeah, he's a gun. So he's, he's a good player, he's a, yeah. He's the guy to beat this week, I yeah. think, by the sound nice. of it. Yeah, but we'll look forward to watching that as it unfolds. That's it for episode Clates. What episode was it? 129. 129 of State of the Game. We'll be back to do it all again next time here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.
www.mindfulpractice.com.